Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever since the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library in Egypt in 1945 and the subsequent publication of various non-canonical gospels and other lost ancient texts, there has been an increased interest in the early history and development of Christianity. In particular, there is a growing fascination with the so-called Gnostics and their alternative interpretation of biblical scriptures. But since the study of what is often termed Gnosticism is still very young, there have emerged many different perspectives and interpretations on how this group or groups should be um, categorized, which texts belong to who and how they should be understood. As a result, there are often many misconceptions about this topic and its complexities. There's a tendency to sensationalize and exotify these things in ways that don't necessarily align with actual scholarship. So with this in mind, let's take a moment to look at what the latest scholarship says on this topic and ask ourselves the questions, who were the Gnostics and what is Gnosticism? The term Gnostic can be and is used in a variety of different ways. The word itself comes from the Greek term gnosis, meaning knowledge, or more often a specific kind of knowledge or insight beyond the conceptual. 
Gnosis is frequently used to mean a kind of intuitive spiritual knowledge as opposed to everyday information. As such, the word Gnosis and Gnostic has or had positive connotations in many circles in antiquity. The Hermetists, for example, talk about Gnosis as opposed to episteme, and proto-Orthodox Christians like Clement of Alexandria used the word to refer to a superior kind of spiritual or intellectual state. And we often see this broad use of the term today in scholarly literature. Various people across history are called quote-unquote Gnostics on the basis that they are connected to a supra-rational kind of knowledge. For example, Islamic mystics or Sufis are often referred to as Gnostics, with Arabic words like Irfan and Arif being possible equivalents. But when we talk about the Gnostics, or even Gnosticism, we are more often using the word in a specific way as referring to a movement in early Christianity. One that has become famous for its world-neglecting attitudes and very complex metaphysical scheme. The Gnostics represented one tendency among a multitude of interpretations after the Jesus event, one that eventually disappeared after the gradual formation of a Christian orthodoxy or official church, and which can differ dramatically from the latter. Talking about the Gnostics and Gnosticism can be very difficult, since they didn't survive beyond a few centuries AD, accessing sources and information about this topic has been hard. The only sources we had for most of history were those written by the heresiologists, so proto-Christians or later writers like Irenaeus, for example, who wrote very critically about the Gnostics and wanted to sort of deem them as heretics. But in 1945, the monumental discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library in Egypt revolutionized our understanding of these groups. The Coptic texts found in the library contain writings by the so-called Gnostics themselves, some of which had been mentioned in the works of the heresiologists previously. And since then, we've been able to get a much more comprehensive and nuanced understanding about the ideas and practices of various early Christian communities and schools of thought. Despite this, however, there is disagreement among scholars on how this Gnosticism should be categorized. Some have opted for a very universalist approach to Gnosticism, um, which views Gnosticism as such as a sort of wider religious or spiritual intellectual movement in antiquity, in to which many different groups belonged. So we talk about uh, specifically Christian groups like the Valentinians or the Marcionites or the um, the Sethians, for example, as all belonging to this wider category of Gnosticism. These scholars will often want to include other non-Christian movements or traditions as Gnosticism as well, like the Mandaeans or the Manichaeans, and sometimes even the Hermetists. Many others will argue that there was no such thing as Gnosticism at all, that this is just a modern category that we anachronistically apply to a context that was much more complex than that. But many scholars today, including David Brackey in his book The Gnostics, argue for a kind of middle position, with a much more narrow definition of Gnosticism as a particular school of thought within the diversity of early Christianity. In this episode, I will be following this more narrow definition of Gnosticism, talking about the Gnostics as, in particular, an expression of early Christianity, and following scholar David Brackey, I will be identifying these Gnostics uh, especially or particularly with the group that is often known as the Sethians. 
while also touching on other related movements like the Valentinians, of course. Okay, so who were the Gnostics then? Well, the first thing to have in mind here is the, well, the environment of early Christianity. A common way to present the first few centuries after Jesus' death, including by early Christians like Irenaeus, who is a person who will return a lot in this discussion, is with a single orthodox church from which a number of different sects or heresies diverged. But this, as you might imagine, is a very anachronistic way of reading history. It only seems that way from the perspective of a much later established orthodoxy looking back at its earliest developments. The model of a single true church from which heresies diverged has long been abandoned by scholars, but neither should we see it as a group of fixed quote-unquote schools all competing in a race for authority. There wasn't a unified group of proto-orthodox that remained unchanged and eventually won, but a diverse intermingling of ideas, interpretations, and theological positions. Certainly, certain social groups were formed and clusters of similar interpretations emerged in the early centuries, but all these individuals and schools influenced each other and contributed to the gradual development that resulted in the eventual formation of an orthodox church. This great diversity is reflected in the corpus of texts found at Nag Hammadi and otherwise, which appear to come from a multitude of different early Christian movements. You have texts that would eventually become part of the Orthodox canon, like the four Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, etc. But we also find texts that belong to the Gnostic school of thought, like the Secret Book of John and the Gospel of Judas. There are texts like the Gospel of Truth, which seems to come from the Valentinians, and even treatises like the Gospel of Thomas, which appears to come from another Christian movement altogether. In other words, there were many different Christianities at this time, most of whom produced many different texts. The Gnostics seem to have been one of the most influential of these movements, and they are mentioned by many other Christians at this time. Most prominently in our old friend Irenaeus, a bishop of Lyon who very harshly attacks what he considers to be deviant forms of Christianity. In his famous treatise, Detection and Overthrow of Gnosis, falsely so-called, sometimes known simply as Against the Heresies, which was written around the year 180, he calls out the Gnostic heresies, or school of thought, and all those inspired by them, like the Valentinians, as having strayed from true Christianity and created a demonically inspired abomination. He traces all of these false teachings back to a supposed teacher or magician called Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician, and that all their claims to gnosis, or true knowledge, was in fact false. Keep in mind that the word heresy simply means a school of thought at this time, and not necessarily heresy as it is used today. In fact, it is due to people like Irenaeus and their writings that that word came to have the meaning that it has today. That's a very interesting side note. In any case, Irenaeus clearly isn't a fan of the Gnostics, and yet his writings has been one of the main sources that we've had for their teachings and practices for most of history. And when we actually read Irenaeus's reports, um, it seems to align pretty well with the writings by the Gnostics themselves, which we now have since the discovery at Nag Hammadi, which shows that even though he was a polemical writer who wanted to discard the Gnostics as heretics and to uh, his whole argument was that they were wrong, basically, it seems that what he wrote wasn't entirely untrue and that we can rely to some degree on what he has to say. So in spite of his polemical nature and the fact that he was so critical, Irenaeus still remains one of our main sources and most trustworthy sources to this day. 
Irenaeus himself clearly doesn't think that this group has access to gnosis, since this was a positive term for most people at the time. So with this in mind, we can be pretty sure that he isn't the one who gave them this name, and that there was a school of thought which appears to have referred to themselves as the Gnostics. It also appears that other groups like the Valentinians, who are actually the main targets of Irenaeus' critique, were not considered as part of this Gnostic school, but were nonetheless, of course, inspired by them. This has led many scholars to argue that this Gnostic school of thought as such, identified by Irenaeus and others at the time, should be identified specifically with a group that we today often call the Sethians, or the Sethian Gnostics. But who were these Gnostics or Sethians then? What did they believe and how did they practice? To get to the bottom of these questions, we can look at two primary kinds of sources, those written by other people, like those by Irenaeus, for example, and sources written by the Gnostics themselves. And luckily, due to the discovery at Nag Hammadi, the latter is actually possible today. Out of all the texts found in this collection, there are a few that can, with some certainty, be attributed to the Gnostic school, more narrowly defined. Most primary and influential of these is the so-called Secret Book of John, sometimes called the Apocrypha of John. But there are others like Zostrianos, The Foreigner, The Reality of the Rulers, and the Book of Zoroaster. The very famous Gospel of Judas, which was actually a later find, not a part of the Nag Hammadi library as such, is also usually considered by scholars to belong to the Gnostics. One of the reasons these texts are grouped together and connected to this specific group is that their cosmic myth is relatively consistent throughout, and it is to this myth that we now turn. The Gnostic myth has become famous for its complexity and the way it turns some basic concepts of mainstream Christianity and Judaism on its head. The world of the divine is vast. It's a vast divine world filled with many eons and their relationship with each other. Even, quote-unquote, before the creation of the material world, which takes place outside of time, so before and after has no meaning here, but still, even before the creation of the material world, this complex pleroma of many divine eons, known together as the entirety, existed in harmony. The Gnostics inherited the conception of God and the divine from antiquity and philosophy as a complex realm rather than a stricter monotheism as it later came to be conceived. In any case, at the very top or center of this divine realm, what encompasses the whole affair is the absolute and ultimate God, which is referred to with many names such as the Platonic One or Monad, or as the Father of the Entirety, and as the Invisible Spirit. This God is understood in common apophatic ways, it is completely unknowable, it cannot be described or understood in any way, and yet it is the source of everything, and indeed the reality in which everything takes place. Quote, The One is the Invisible Spirit. We should not think of it as a God or like a God, for it is greater than a God, because it has nothing over it and no Lord above it. It does not exist within anything inferior to it, since everything exists within it, for it established itself. It is eternal, since it does not need anything, for it is absolutely complete. It has never lacked anything in order to be completed by it. Rather, it is always absolutely completely in light. The One is illimitable, since there is nothing before it to limit it, unfathomable, since there is nothing before it to fathom it, 
immeasurable since there was nothing before it to measure it, invisible since nothing has seen it, eternal since it exists eternally, unutterable since nothing could comprehend it to utter it, unnameable since there is nothing before it to give it a name. The invisible spirit is a kind of intellect. In other words, in some way not understandable to us, it thinks about itself and knows itself. And in the process of this thinking, God is devolved into the complex world of eons, the entirety already described. These eons are kind of like God's thoughts about himself, thus being both identical to him but simultaneously also somehow different. In the words of David Brackey, quote, The eons that make up the entirety result from the invisible spirit's knowledge or thought of itself. They are its thinking or its intellect in all its complexity. They form also a spiritual realm, the equivalent of Plato's realm of ideal forms. For the Gnostics, the entirety that the eons constitute is truly real and eternal. The material world is a flawed imitation of the entirety and destined to perish. Now all these eons, which are kind of like divine beings or divine lights, are named after certain divine attributes, the faint imitations of which we can find in the material world. The first emanation or eon that appears from the invisible spirit, sometimes known as the second principle, is called forethought, or by the name of Barbelo. Quote, his, in other words, the invisible spirit, thought became a reality, and she who appeared in his presence in shining light came forth. She is the first power who preceded everything and came forth from his mind as the forethought of the all. Her light shines like the Father's light. She, the perfect power, is the image of the perfect and invisible virgin spirit. She, the first power, the glory of Barbelo, the perfect glory among the eons, the glory of revelation, she glorified and praised the virgin spirit, for because of the spirit she had come forth. She is the first thought, the image of the spirit. She became the universal womb, for she precedes everything. The Barbelo serves as the most central of the eons, from which all others then originate. It is also a feature that all Gnostic sources have in common, whereas everything beyond or after the Barbelo can differ between texts and different authors. But this second principle is also very important for its connection to Christianity, because it is central to the idea of Christ. In the secret book of John, the Barbelo, together with the invisible spirit, begets the self-originate, or Christ, thus forming a kind of family triad, father, the invisible spirit, mother, the Barbelo, and son, Christ. We will return more to the role of Christ in the Gnostic myth later, but this self-originate, or Christ, also serves as a transitionary aeon between the Barbelo and the rest of the multitude of aeons that make up the entirety, and he is often described as being the ruler over the rest of the aeons. Around this Christ aeon are four luminaries referred to as Harmozel, Uruael, Daoethai, and Eleleth, which also contain the archetypal human beings, Adam and his son Seth. From these four luminaries or eons stem further eons, and you can see how this system is very complicated and hard to grasp. It is also important to remember that the different Gnostic texts give different accounts on this divine realm and its eons, so it's hard to say anything definitive about the details. The eons are often numbered at 24 in total, and as mentioned earlier, they are named after and represent certain attributes of God or the invisible spirit. There are eons like truth, 
mind, life, and perhaps most importantly for the Gnostic myth, wisdom, or Sophia in Greek. Even though all these eons are seen as being beyond gender or genderless, they are often thought of as existing in male-female pairs, which complement each other. The eons are also semi-distinct, in other words, they are all god in a general sense, but make up a more complex kind of divinity than what we are used to today. Now, the very general and central part of this myth appears with one of the so-called outermost eons, that is wisdom or Sophia. In the secret book of John, it describes how this wisdom eon or Sophia wanted to create something, a thought of her own, but did so without the consent or knowledge of her male counterpart or asking permission from the great invisible spirit. Quote, she, wisdom, wanted to bring forth something like herself without the consent of the spirit who had not given approval without her partner and without his consideration. The male did not give approval. She did not find her partner and she considered this without the spirit's consent and without the knowledge of her partner. Nonetheless, she gave birth. This resulted in an imperfect creation, a misshapen pseudo-divine being that stood outside of the divine world of the entirety. Quote, it did not resemble its mother and was misshapen. When Sophia saw what her desire had produced, it changed into the figure of a snake with the face of a lion. Sophia was immediately very ashamed of her actions and creation and decided to hide it away from the rest of the eons in a kind of cloud. This being was given the name Yaldabaoth and is sometimes also known by names like Saklas. Yaldabaoth himself, in his ignorance, thinks that he is the only divinity, having little knowledge of the true divine world. He thus proceeds to create an imperfect and highly flawed world modeled after the dim memory he has of the divine Pleroma. This world, the creation of Yaldabaoth, is the material world in which we live. And this is where the Gnostics show their radical departure from what we consider mainstream Christianity and Judaism today. The idea that the material world was created by a divine being lower than the highest god, a demiurge or craftsman in platonic language, was taken for granted at this time even by monotheists, but the idea that this creator or this craftsman was ignorant, in some accounts even evil, was quite radical. This also meant a radical rereading of biblical myths. All of this meant that the God of the whole Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament to Christians, the God described in Genesis as creating Adam and Eve, the God who sent the flood, the God of the Israelites, was not the true ultimate God. It was Yaldabaoth. In the grand scheme of things, the material world becomes something very negative. As a result of a grave mistake that must be fixed, a creation by an ignorant, imperfect, foolish creator that is keeping us prisoners. Indeed, the human being, according to the Gnostic myth, has a dual nature. We are material beings created by Yaldabaoth, but the true divine realm also helped us by tricking Yaldabaoth to, quote, blow his spirit into Adam, so famously said in the Bible, uh, which was really a way to infuse the human being with the divine spark from wisdom and from the rest of the eons. This allowed Adam to stand up straight and to challenge Yaldabaoth and his rulers. In other words, there is a spiritual part of human nature that comes from the true divine realm, which is also our ticket to get out of this lesser material world. 
After Eve is created, she and Adam have a number of children. Uh, the famous Cain and Abel are conceived through a kind of imperfect or impure union when the spirit of Eve leaves her body and Yaldabaoth actually, well, he actually rapes her, which results in this, these two children. But Adam and Eve have another son called Seth, who is conceived in a more, more pure way, and Seth becomes very important for the Gnostics. Seth is seen as the bearer of gnosis, or true wisdom, and as the kind of ancestor to the Gnostics themselves. So, as you might know, these Gnostics, at least if we define them as narrowly as I and some other scholars have here, uh, sometimes or more often actually refer to themselves as the seed of Seth, or are sometimes also known as the Sethians. And this is because they trace their lineage back to this character of Seth, who was the sort of true son of Adam and Eve. In any case, this creation story, of course, differs very dramatically from the one we're used to from mainstream Christianity, so to say. Um, for example, the snake or serpent that tempts Eve and Adam to eat from the tree of knowledge to the Gnostics is not Satan who tricks them, but is actually the a messenger from the divine world of the Pleroma, the entirety, who is actually trying to help Adam and Eve to escape from the creation of Yaldabaoth. So this interpretation is completely turned upside down. It's the exact opposite of the mainstream position. Many argue that this idea of an ignorant false god comes naturally from a reading or comparison between the Old and New Testament. Even today, many who read these two collection of texts are sometimes struck by the seeming at least difference in personality of God in these two um, testaments uh, or uh, scriptures. So in the Old Testament, for example, God seems a lot more harsh, like he orders the execution of groups of people, he sends down thunder, and, and it's, it's a lot of nasty stuff. He's very angry, he's jealous, all these kind of characteristics. While in the New Testament, uh, he seems to emphasize other things like love and compassion. And so people like the Gnostics in antiquity, they also notice this seeming difference. And to them, the only explanation for this um, weird difference in character must be that these are in fact two different gods. One described in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, which is the false god, Yaldabaoth, and the true god who sends Jesus, the invisible spirits of the actual divine world. Yaldabaoth, in all his ignorance and vanity, wants his creation to worship him only, punishing those who don't. Jealously, he exclaims in the Hebrew Bible, quote, For my part, I am a jealous god, and there is no other god apart from me which, according to the secret book of John, paradoxically gives away the fact that there is indeed another god. Quote, For if no other one existed, of whom would he be jealous? Human beings are caught in the delusional prison that is the material world, but has the potential of escaping to their true home. But they need help in order to do so, and this is where Jesus enters the picture. The Gnostics were Christians, after all, and existed as a response to the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, considered to be the Christ or Anointed One, the Savior of humanity. Again, the different texts differ on the nature of Christ as the incarnation of the cosmic Savior figure. Some, like the first thought in three forms, seem to indicate that it is the Barbalo herself who enters into human form as Jesus. Quote, For my parts, I put on Jesus. I extracted him from the accursed wood, and I made him stand at rest in the dwelling places of his parents. 
But we've also seen how the secret book of John describes Christ as a divine eon in himself, being begotten from the invisible spirit and the barbelo. The important part to know is that Jesus is a savior sent by the highest God, the, the true God in this case, to save humanity from the prison of the ignorant Yaldabaoth. The Gnostics have a significantly different conception of Jesus from the later Orthodox position. They professed a kind of docetism, that is, the idea that Jesus did not actually have a material body. It only seemed like he did, and thus he never suffered on the cross in any real way. And if you know mainstream Christian theology, you'll know that this goes against some of its very fundamental features. Jesus' humanity and suffering is a central part of the salvation narrative. But remember, the Gnostics saw the material world in a very negative light, as the creation of a foolish pseudo-god, and thus didn't place the same emphasis on the physical aspect. To the Gnostics, Jesus didn't save mankind by suffering on the cross, he did so by teaching them about Gnosis, about the true knowledge of our real identities and our essential home in the divine realm of the entirety. Christ was sent by the great invisible spirit to remind humanity of our true home and thereby help us escape the shackles of material existence. Quite a different version of events from the orthodox narrative. So this is where the Gnostics find themselves. They are the seed of Seth, those who have been given the true teachings of Christ passed down from the apostles. They possess exclusive gnosis of the divine reality which they can impart on the initiate. And this group made up a significant part of the diverse world of early Christianity. The practical aspects of Gnosticism are of course connected to these very grand myths and theories, and even here they differ very dramatically from mainstream Christianity. Our sources suggest that the Gnostics did perform some kind of baptism through water, um, a practice that was very common in various religious traditions in antiquity. Um, this baptism is supposed to have involved something referred to as the five seals, but scholars are unsure what this actually means. It is quite likely that this baptism differed in many ways from the baptism ritual that we know from mainstream Christianity. For example, it seems that the uh, Gnostics would be baptized on multiple occasions, perhaps uh, in, in connection to reaching different stations or, or, or levels on the spiritual path or the path to back to the divine pleroma. Uh, it's not entirely certain. And indeed, this seems to be another major characteristic of Gnostic practice, different methods and techniques that help the practitioner ascend into the divine realm of different eons until reaching the highest eon of the Barbelo and perhaps even contemplating the invisible spirit itself. Quote, the Gnostics believe that the human intellect could experience gnosis, that is, acquaintance with God within this mortal life, however fleetingly. They portrayed this experience primarily as an ascent to higher knowledge that was both intellectual and cosmic. Intellectually, the Gnostic could ascend by contemplating increasingly abstract levels of existence, starting by understanding one's own existence and that of other lower divine beings, advancing to the contemplation of higher eons, ultimately the Barbelo, and attempting to gain some imperfect acquaintance with the ineffable first principle, the invisible spirit. These practices seem to have involved a kind of asceticism and studying of mystical and philosophical works, but other than this we really find no 
characteristic rituals associated with the Gnostics that survive, at least. Indeed, they even outright rejected certain uh, practices that other Christians performed, like the Eucharist, which they saw as foolish. This becomes apparent in the famous Gospel of Judas, where Jesus scorns some of the apostles for performing the Eucharist, and for doing so they are ignorant and are worshipping a false god rather than the correct one. In this gospel, Judas Iscariot becomes the only apostle who knows Jesus' true identity when he exclaims, quote, You have come from the mortal realm of the Barbalo, but as for the one who sent you, I am not worthy to say his name. These doctrines, practices, and scriptural interpretations set them apart from many other early Christians, including people like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, who would in later times be considered orthodox or proto-orthodox. But as talked about earlier, in the early period, all of these diverse movements had an equal claim to be the quote-unquote true Christianity, or of becoming orthodox. The Gnostic school of thought, often called Sethians, appears to have been very influential. Their ideas seem to have been widespread across the Roman Empire and influenced many other early Christians. This includes movements that are sometimes included under the category of Gnosticism, or broadly defined, but which doesn't fit the bill if we define the term more narrowly, as we have here. The Valentinians, for example, associated with the 2nd century teacher Valentinus from Alexandria, took a lot of inspiration from the Gnostic myths, but modified them using more clearly Christian terminology. Texts from the Nag Hammadi attributed to the Valentinians include the Gospel of Truth and the Tripartite Treatise, which showcase a lot of similarities with the Gnostic myth, albeit a bit simplified. The worldview of the Valentinians were not as outright negative as that of the Gnostics, and seems a bit more explicitly monistic. They also seem to have blended in with the rest of the Christians much more, going to the same churches and congregations, only meeting for special meetings to be taught the particularly Valentinian aspects of the teachings. Indeed, in Irenaeus's Against the Heresies, it is the Valentinians who are his main target of critique and concern, probably because they outwardly appeared like any other Christians, but according to him, harbored heretical teachings in secret and invited unsuspecting Christians into their study circles. Similarly, the Anatolian Marcion and the Marcionites also share a lot of features with the Gnostics, including the complex divine realm, the pseudo-god or demiurge that created the material world, etc. However, the creator god was not ignorant or evil, according to Marcion, but quote, unrelentingly just, and the highest god is here referred to as the stranger rather than the invisible spirit. Marcion is created with being the first Christian to attempt to create a canonical New Testament, including a modified version of the Gospel of Luke and a few of the Pauline letters. And he differs from the Gnostics and other related groups by denying the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament entirely. So while the Gnostics saw the Old Testament as somewhat misguided in its praise of the false Yaldabaoth, they still saw it as useful for teaching purposes, but Marcion just rejected its use completely. There are other groups and thinkers clearly inspired by the Gnostic school of thought in this early period, all of whom we can dedicate separate episodes to. But the Gnostic school of thought in particular stands out as a very fascinating expression of the Jesus movement. As Christianity became the imperial religion of the Roman Empire and an official orthodoxy was established in the different church councils over time, the Gnostic school disappears from the historical record. They did not survive these developments, at least not explicitly. 
But indeed, we find remnants of the Gnostics in later developments and movements as well. The religions of Manichaeism and Mandaeism share a lot of features with the Gnostics, and even later in the Middle Ages, there are groups like the Cathars in Western Europe whose teachings may connect in some way to the Gnostic school, or at least to certain of the ideas that they held. And as with so many other ancient religions, we find a kind of resurgence of interest in Gnosticism today, from YouTube channels, Reddit forums, and university courses. It, it all testifies to an increased interest and fascination with this ancient quote-unquote heresy. The fact that people even today actually identify as Gnostics and as wanting to revive this ancient form of Christianity shows just how complex the religious environment of today and of really all times and places are, and that every religion and religious movement are engaged in constant flux and development. I'll see you next time. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.